Welcome back to the 15 on the 15, our bite-sized book club series featuring podcasts designed to help you digest short articles. This 15-minute recipe for success is a pinch of insightful reading, a dash of engaging discussion that blends together research and classroom practice. My name is Katie Lashad, and I'm the director of the English as a New Language program at the University of Notre Dame. We are wishing you and your students a blessed 2017. Today's podcast has us taking a closer look at what works in developing the vocabulary of English learners. Our reading selection comes from the U.S. Department of Education and the IES, the What Works Clearinghouse, which features effective literacy and English language instruction for English language learners in the elementary grades. Okay, Katie, I have to stop you. That report is a total mouthful. Absolutely. I completely, (laughs) completely know. And as promised, we're going to stay true to our 15 on the 15th promise. This is going to be a bite-sized book club. So we want you to focus specifically on pages 19 through 27. Of course, if you want to read all 43 pages of this report, I think you'll love it. It's a great report. Okay, Katie, I know that we have planned to spotlight five strategies for vocabulary acquisition that are grounded in research. But before we begin, is it okay if I share with you one of my favorite quotes about vocabulary acquisition? Absolutely. It's from Dr. Isabel Beck at the University of Pittsburgh, who's really a giant in the field of vocabulary. And she says something that is so simple, but I love, and I think it should inspire the rest of our discussion today. She says, little kids absolutely love learning big words. And I just think before we talk about any of these strategies, it's important to remember that kids do love learning vocabulary, especially when the teacher loves using big words. And the teacher loves learning language, too. So we all know that English learners carry a heavy load, a heavy language load in school. And I just think teachers need to, we need to remember to exhibit joy and curiosity and a playfulness to inspire our students to carry this load. And, you know, the article does speak to this in one part where they warn that so often our instincts as teachers are to cushion learning for our students, especially our English learners. But that doesn't mean dumbing vocabulary down. What it means is providing bridges to meaning for great words. And so I just want to, you know, as we head in to remind everybody that English learners love to learn big words, too and let us be inspired to do it. Absolutely. I mean, number one, I think our English language learners may and most likely know really big words in their first language. So to honor that and the fact that we are bridging to their second or third language. So we're going to provide those bridges. And today I want to go through that in kind of five strategies. The first one is what I'd like to call uh, the backdrop strategy. So it's really about incidental exposure to vocabulary. So we know that for all children, incidental exposure to vocabulary is one in which language is acquired incidentally through reading, absorption. Indirectly. Indirectly. Reading, classroom conversations. Absolutely. So it's really important that first and foremost, we are carving out time in our days to provide a structure for indirect exposure. This means allowing children time to read, creating a structure in which language investigation is really valued, one in which we are constantly keeping our eye toward learning new words. So I think two great examples of this that come to mind for me, Katie, are a lot of teachers are going to be familiar with this, the drop everything and read, where, and it can be so hard, but teachers carve out 
15 or 20 minutes a day just to allow their children to peacefully read and select whatever reading material that they want. Another technique that comes to mind is teachers making sure, because research shows us that students that read even just 20 minutes outside of school make the largest vocabulary gains. The teachers who make sure kids have in their backpacks at the end of the day a book, a magazine that they can very easily pull out when they get home and read. Obviously, there's all kinds of, you know, reading calendars and the like, but we need to give kids the opportunity to be exposed extensively to language. Absolutely. I mean, I think a couple of things that come to my mind would be, number one, having this reading be at a level in which it's comprehensible. So we talk a lot about comprehensible input. Uh, we were speaking earlier today, but it may be an inappropriate example for a second grade English language learner would be a fourth or fifth grade novel in English. Incidental and indirect exposure and acquisition of vocabulary may not happen easily in that case when there's such a hurdle for the language of the child. The other thing that brought to mind is the vocabulary gap. There's a real research base to acknowledge the fact that our English language learners and our English-only students come to school with a very large gap in their vocabulary knowledge, and that this gap only continues to widen over the trajectory of a school career without the proper intervention of a qualified teacher, which is where you all come in. So hopefully these strategies are ways to really augment your vocabulary instruction. One thing to really note that the field has pointed out in this article, too, is that I know we all have a lot going on in our classroom, but we tend to not really separate time for vocabulary. And I don't just mean the vocabulary book. I don't just mean, you know, maybe some of the bolded words on the side, but really making time in our day to explicitly teach vocabulary and to see that as a bridge for content knowledge gain. So our first strategy was really talking about backdrop and just making sure that we're setting up appropriate frameworks for indirect acquisition of language. The next four strategies are going to focus on maybe four explicit ways to address vocabulary. Okay, Katie, so you just nailed our second strategy, which isn't the opposite, but I would argue the complement to this backdrop that we need to keep in mind. And I, I want to call this one the take the bull by the horn strategy. Can you tell I lived in Texas? Research has proven that English language learners show the most growth when vocabulary instruction is explicit and is deliberate. So even though that we know that indirect exposure to words is crucial, that it's equally crucial, especially for our English learners, that we also teach vocabulary regularly and intentionally in our classrooms. Okay, and the research here varies a little bit about just how much vocabulary we should be teaching. Some experts argue two to three words a day that we need to focus on, whereas others, eight to ten words a week. But one well, and thing... I also want to interject, too. Yeah. I think that some people argue, too, the acquisition of phrases. So phrases can be acquired right. at different rates, too. So it's just to say, I mean, by and large, I think it depends on the child. I think it depends on the age level. Again, the proficiency in their first language. So there are some factors here, but maybe that's just kind of a little marker for you to keep in mind. And that's good to point out, because I think these words and phrases need to be taught intensively. And we're going to get to repeated exposure in a minute. But these words and phrases, they need to be revisited throughout the week. They need to be purposely worked into classroom discussions. They need to be visible in the classroom so the kids can see and read them again and again. And it could be a whole nother podcast to discuss 
how exactly we choose these words. I know we're going to get into it a little bit. They can be from the books that we're reading. They can be f about current events. We can extract them from a unit theme. But I, there's something that I want to clarify here before we go on to strategy number three. Okay, so we need to make sure that we teach vocabulary deliberately in our classrooms for our English learners. We're not talking here spelling lists or the words that might be traditionally highlighted in basal readers. I think the report reads something like this. It's rare that core reading programs provide sufficient vocabulary. So as teachers, we need to be thinking, what words do our kids in addition need to learn? That are critical for comprehension. That are critical to comprehension and that they have their own student-centered understanding of. In other words, we're not talking similarly, and I'll get to this again in a minute, just knowing dictionary definitions of words. We're talking about student-friendly definitions that they can actually use these words to communicate. Absolutely, and I think one thing to follow up on is, um, you know, explicit instruction may look like explicitly listing these words in your lesson plan. It's not something that can just be done on the fly, but really being intentional about these are the five words for today that are necessary for comprehension, and I'm going to make sure that my English language learner is familiar. We're going to front load these. We're going to teach them before we actually begin our lesson, and we're going to make sure that they are bridged for comprehension. Uh, the other thing to talk about is actually supporting this when it happens. You can teach them explicitly, but to what extent do you have these words posted on a word wall? Are they on a repeating PowerPoint that the students can access? Do the stu students have personal dictionaries? To what extent is it explicitly taught that they are also internalizing these words? So one thing to wrap up this section would be the fact that there's a real difference in research between teaching vocabulary and teaching vocabulary learning strategies. So to what extent are we teaching words and our students learning those, and to what extent, on the other side, are we actually teaching the strategies for retention and becoming kind of a word learner yourself? And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Uh, we're going to go on to strategy number three now. And Claire, I ask you to jump in um, here as much as you would like. Uh, we're going to call this one, a picture is worth a thousand words. I argue not just a picture, but maybe an action, a video, a book, something that can actually supplement the words and the morphemes found on page. So this sounds pretty easy and straightforward, but a lot of times we don't necessarily do this. So I like to provide the following example when I'm talking to teachers. We're in second grade, we're focusing on a unit on apples. Our ELL has kind of mastered the word apple and tree. We're kind of moving along in our lesson, then all of a sudden we jump to an orchard and we're talking about bushels of apples and we're talking about harvest, maybe even talking about bees, bees and pollination. All of a sudden, not only has the language elevated, but so too has the content and what is comprehensible to this child. But I like to back up and say, but had I supported this lesson from the very onset with A, explicit instruction, as Claire mentioned, of what these words are, but B, an image. An image of trees in a row to make up an orchard. An image of the bushel basket below the tree to catch the apples. To what extent could we have supported this whole thing with images? Yeah, think? and you know, sometimes I think that teachers feel that they have to carry the whole burden in terms of finding images. Although, thanks to Google and the like, it is so much easier to pull images quickly. But I know, especially with older students, one of the things that I used to do is when we started to look maybe at a comprehensive list for the week, I would send each of my students home 
with three to five words. And they had to find the pictures. And or draw get, the pictures. Or draw the pictures and bring it in. So after a day or two, we had a, an extensive picture file in our classroom that kids could use if and when they needed it. Absolutely. I think one underlying thing that's really important here is not just that an, a picture and an image supports the words. So obviously you can label these pictures to support the words, but it's also acknowledging the fact that for the second grade ELL, the idea of an orchard is most likely not what is foreign to them. The idea of trees in a row that grow fruit, that's not that abstract to them. But when you just mention the word orchard without an image to support it, then all of a sudden it becomes a concept. So what you're doing is you're building confidence, you're building on L1, and you're really building connections, learning connections and bridges. Okay, so the title that we came up with for our fourth strategy is repeated, repeated, repeated exposure, which the article really drives home, namely that kids must see and hear and encounter these words over and over again. In other words, as we mentioned before, just because a kid looks up a definition in a dictionary doesn't mean that the child has actually internalized this word, that they have a student-friendly definition that they can use in their head. Or something that's functional. Exactly. One of the key numbers that I know you like to throw out there, Katie, is that students need to hear at minimum and hear and see the word about seven times. I'm not sure where that came from at this point in, in our bank of resources, but I think it's something I usually stick to is seven times. And I think what's important to note here, maybe you're going to get to this, Claire, but to know a word is not to know a word is not to know a word. Like it, it doesn't mean that you actually understand a word if you have maybe even read it one time mm-hmm. and not actually, uh, A, pronounced it. So maybe you can jump in with your son's example of the Protestant. Oh, the Protestant? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a word that he encountered in reading that he clearly had never encountered in conversation before. So he had no idea that a protestant was a protestant. And I really think that drives home the need to use the word in meaningful conversation. And you can play all kind of games as a teacher. You know, you get a point every time a class, someone in the class uses a word correctly in a genuine context. Kids love it. I think you're right. I mean, I think there are ways to make games, but more importantly, to make language learning important, and again, to enable our students. So one thing to think about is repeated exposure doesn't mean just seeing the word seven times or saying it seven times. It means using meaningful conversation, which we know is important in our classroom for our ELLs, using language in multiple domains, so using the word in speaking, listening, reading, and writing, And, and of course, also across the curriculum. And that's something else that the article really drives home, which is that Language learning doesn't just take place in the language arts classroom. And the example that I want to give really quickly, and you know I love to give the gym teacher examples, but just imagine for a minute that you're a gym teacher. You've got fifth grade class of kids playing volleyball. You can simply say, out, when the ball goes out of bounds. Or you can use an entire frame, like a whole language section. The ball was out of bounds. Take it even even to another level. Imagine that you also seize the opportunity to teach the word boundary or interior or exterior. You have an automatic built-in visual support in the volleyball court. So teachers, and the report really speaks to this, 
need to be working with their colleagues to make sure that vocabulary instruction is comprehensive. The kids are hearing the same words in different classes and different contexts because we know that'll make the most student-friendly internalized comprehension possible. So Claire, I think this is the perfect connection. You were just talking about cross-curricular connections. Our fifth strategy is building bridges and building linguistic bridges. So one thing that's always kind of struck me most about vocabulary, again, so to hit upon repeated exposure, is that when we're knowing and learning a word, we need to make connections to kind of all parts of our linguistic brain. So we need to make connections to spelling. So to know a word means to know how you actually spell it, how you pronounce it. A big part of this is what are the morphemes. So as much as we can break down words for our children into prefix, suffix, root word, this may come naturally to English-only students. I argue that it oftentimes doesn't and takes explicit instruction, but it certainly is not natural to our English language learners. So beginning to know some basic prefixes, some root words, and some suffixes so they can begin to answer the question of where have I seen this before? What does it sound like? What is it related to? Some other connections that certainly can be made is what part of speech is this? So I think this is true for all of our students, looking at a new word and saying, where does this fit? What does it mean? How can I use it? And, and I just want to add the difference in meanings based on the part of speech. So you take, a, you take an academic word like fault. It could be a noun, a fault. It could be to fault someone becomes a verb, right? There's, there's or if all, you see something written as, it is faulty, what does that mean? So I think a big part of this this whole thing, and maybe this is a little bit of a summation overall too, is to create classrooms in which we're excited about language, we're excited about discovering Mm -hmm. more about where does this word come from, what does it mean, how can I use it more powerfully, and really creating what I would consider to be word sleuths in the fact that our children are kind of owning their own language development. With English language learners, yes, there's a larger gap for them. B, there's a little bit of a more learning curve with their English. But the other part of this is helping them to take ownership over. This is a new word. I don't know what it means. Who do I ask? And what are my tools to to learn and figure it out? And I do know that researchers have discovered that as English learners grow older, they actually develop extraordinary meta-lingual skills. So these are things that they tend to pick up over time, but when they're taught explicitly, you're putting, you're totally expanding the tool belt that they have to be able to make connections between words and to discover meaning. And nitty gritty classroom examples that come to mind are making sure that we teach from a very young age Latin and Greek roots. When kids know these roots, they know that bio means life. They can connect to biology, they can connect to biographer, they can connect to biophosphorescent, right? So you're talking, I know I'm, I was proud of myself too, Katie, for using the word biophosphorescent. Um, so giving kids those tools, and, and something that we haven't talked about that I think it's just so important to mention, these skills benefit every kid in the classroom not just our English learners, but we're really giving our our English learners extra leverage to be able to hook into English. So teachers, if you implement even some of these strategies and expand the acquisition of vocabulary in your classrooms, I think you're going to reap extraordinary benefits because all of a sudden your kids 
are going to comprehend more fully what they read and what they hear. Absolutely. So let's go over our five. So today we're suggesting that you employ kind of a backdrop strategy to incidental exposure. That you take the bull by the horns and teach vocabulary deliberately in your classroom. That's beyond your spelling list and your basal list. That three, uh, a picture is worth a thousand words. So we are we supplementing language with images in kind of context rich richness. That we need to offer repetition, repetition, repetition when kids see these words and hear them more than once in all kinds of different contexts. The depth of their understanding of their word and the potential for using it greatly expands. And the fifth strategy would be that we're building linguistic bridges. Are you really kind of strengthening your students to conduct their own linguistic investigations and take ownership of their own language development to some extent? If you would like to learn more about vocabulary and about serving culturally and linguistically diverse children in our Catholic schools, please consider becoming an ENL Hernandez Fellow. Applications can be found online at enl.nd.edu. The application deadline is March 31st, and we would love to welcome you into our ENL family. Thank you so very much for joining us today, and as always, if you enjoyed this month's conversation, please be sure to subscribe to our channel and share it with a friend. We'd love to hear your feedback, so please leave a review for us on iTunes and let us know what topics you would like for us to cover in the future. Thank you. God bless.